Hi, everybody. Thank you all for being here for a new Full Armor Apologetics session. Um, today's guest is, in my es estimation, absolute sanctified beast if it comes to history, geopolitics, globalism, spiritual warfare, psychological warfare, mass psychology, Christianity, and everything that has to do with anti-Christianity. And uh, his understanding of what, ha what is happening throughout history and what is happening in two worlds is, in my estimation, just second to none. Uh, he's the son of Walid Shubat, a former Islamic jihadist turned Christian, turned speaker and an author and a warrior of Christ. Uh, he himself is being a prolific author and has written books like uh, For God or For Tyranny, When Nations Deny God's Natural Law, which he co-wrote with his father. Uh, in Satan's Footsteps, The Source and Interconnections of All Evil, Christianity at War, The Manifesto for Christian Militancy. Uh, he has written countless articles. He's running his website, www.shootabout.com. He's running his own YouTube channel, making you second guess everything you know about the world. And uh, today we're going to talk about the anti-Christian persecution that is unfolding globally. And I'm, I'm delighted to have someone who, has, who knows a thing or two about it. Uh, Brother Theodore Shubat, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Great to have you, brother. Um, first question. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your history, about, uh, of, uh, about your interest in history and uh, why it is that you do what you do? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> we got all the time in the world, brother. Take right. it. Need. Awesome. So my interest in history goes back to basically when I was in elementary school. Um, so really young age. Um, I think it, it got triggered by me going to me being in public education and then being told all the time that the Native Americans were just this amazing civilization and they were wonderful and everything was just great and they respected nature and they loved nature. They loved mother earth and all this stuff. And then the Europeans came and they ruined everything, you know, for the native American. And I remember in, when I was in the fifth grade, so I don't know how the grade system works in Europe. You guys have like secondary or out of primary school, secondary. I don't, I don't know how it works, but in, in the United States, we have elementary school and then that goes for five years. And well, actually more than that, about six years. And so when I was in fifth grade, um, that's when I began to get told about how the Native Americans were just wonderful. And I just knew instinctively that there was just something wrong with the whole picture. And nobody told me like, hey, this is not true. Native Americans actually had cannibalism and human sacrifice and all this, all these horrible things. No one told me that. I just there was something about it that just didn't fit right with me. And I began to research the Native Americans, and this is basically how it began. Um, I was fascinated with the early wars between the Europeans and the Native Americans and how the Native Americans had these really diabolical rituals. Um, we can talk about ISIS and, and Muslims and all that stuff, but there was something about the Native American culture and religion that was just extremely cruel really cruel like absolute cannibalism um eating people up just killing people in the most horrific horrific ways that you can imagine um and i was i began to become very passionate about the subject because i kept hearing about how the europeans were just so evil and i'm like wait hold on we're not talking about 
the Native Americans, though. So that really sparked a, a huge fascination with the with that part of history. And when I got into junior high, I began to hear more. I kept hearing the pro Native stuff, the like the sympathy to the Native American stuff, but I also began to hear the pro-Muslim stuff. That's when I, when I began to hear it in junior high, specifically in the sixth grade. So the first year of junior high, junior high education. And they began to talk about how the, um, there was this textbook, actually. This was really crazy. And I don't know how this got accepted by the, the Board of Education in California because it's supposed to be secular and there's supposed to be no religion in the school. But there was this textbook that was very controversial, I remember. I forget the name of it, but I'm pretty certain that it was mainly authored by a Muslim woman. I'm, I think she was Iranian. And they had this long section on Islam. So they had, they had a section for all the major, for each major religion, Christianity, Buddhism, Judaism, all this stuff. But when it came to the part on Islam, it was almost like it was proselytizing to the reader. So it was, wasn't just, well, Muslims believe this and, and Muhammad lived in this century and et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was literally saying, in this date, Muhammad was in a cave and an angel appeared to him. And it was very controversial. And I remember, I remember my father reading it and he was so upset. He was so angry, my dad, that the next morning, <laughs> my dad walked into the office with his pajamas on <laughs> with the textbook in hand and he slammed the textbook on the desk of the vice principal of the school and he asked the he asked the vice principal what day is it what day is it and the vice president the vice principal said it's september 11th and my dad said then why the hell are you teaching this nonsense in the school and he said, if I'm going to tolerate you teaching these things in the school, then I'll be damned. That's pretty much exactly what my dad told this guy. So my, the vice principal was very frightened by the whole thing. And he said to my dad to call up this number and make a complaint, basically. So my dad make, called up the number and the, the person on the other line of the telephone said, that you and like hundreds of other parents are making complaints. So eventually they got rid of that textbook. But again, these little events in my life, they begin to cultivate an interest in this subject. Um, so it went from being interested in Native Americans to being interested in Native Americans and Islam. And then I, I began to, when I was in uh, high school, I began to study the Native American savagery and then I also began to study the Armenian genocide. Mm. I, I was reading a lot about the Hadith and the wars that were fought between the, between the Arabs, the pagan Arabs and the Muslim Arabs, and how um, Islam is essentially just a Christian heresy. Because initially I thought that Islam was just like a different, it was just a completely different religion. And it is, it's a different religion. It's not Christianity. But, but Islam is different from Christianity just as it's different from uh, just as Mormonism is different from Christianity or just as the Jehovah's Witnesses are different from Christianity. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a very interesting observation. It's, it's a very restorationistic type of dissection of Christianity. Yes. It's like, no, we're going to fix everything. Like, yeah, right. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, 
my dad was the one who first who initially told me that Islam is a is a, is, a, is just a Christian cult. My dad was the first person who told me this when I was in high school. And my dad told me that if you look at some of the original Islamic artwork, it was almost Christian. I think they didn't have crosses, but they they had I forget exactly what it was. Maybe I think it was like they had more reverence for Jesus than today. And my dad also told me when I was in high school that initially, initially, Muslims did not pray to Mecca. Originally, the Muslims did not bow down to Mecca. They bowed down to Jerusalem. That was the original Islamic ritual of prayer. It was you bowed towards Jerusalem. What's also interesting about that is if you read some of the earlier Christian texts from the fourth century, I, I can't list a number of a, a, a lot of references on this, but there was one book I read years ago. It was on the life of, of Constantine, the Emperor Constantine. Yeah. And it said that when Constantine would pray, he always prayed towards Jerusalem. So this was a really ancient Christian practice. And the Muslims picked up on this. Later on, they shifted it from Jerusalem to Mecca. It became more Arabized. But Islam was a Christian cult. And it still is. It was probably more the, the Christian influence on Islam was probably a lot more recognizable and more explicit and amplified when Islam was a brand new religion. But it was there. It's still there. Islam is a Christian cult, just like Arianism was a Christian heresy. In fact, I would argue that Islam is merely an Arabian extension of Arianism or an Arabian continuation yeah, yeah. of the Arian heresy. As a matter of fact, like we of course have John of Damascus, he calls them the mutilators of God, and he calls also calls them the an yeah, Arianist yeah. heresy. Yes, yeah. yes, John of Damascus, and there were several other Christian um, apologists from a long time ago when Islam was a brand new religion. There was a guy who who I believe was before John of Damascus. I'm trying to remember his name, Peter of. I think it was Peter of Maimuna or something like that. He was a Syrian Christian uh, writer back in the, I want to say the eighth century. And he was, uh, he actually debated a Muslim and he, the debate was written down. And I remember I have, I have a, a, a book of the, of the collections of his writings, really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the debate, it's really fascinating. The arguments that were going on between the Christian and the, and the Muslim the in the debate, the Muslim, in fact, specifically attacks the ritual or the the sacrament of the Eucharist. I found this to be really fascinating. And the Muslim accuses the Christian of idolatry, of worshiping bread. <laughs> he says the Muslim tells the Christian, you guys take bread and you call it Jesus and you and you and you eat it and you believe you're eating Jesus. This is idolatry. And that fascinates me because when the protestant reformation began um one of the thing one of the terms that english protestants would call catholics english catholics was bread worshipers the bread worshipers so islam truly began as a a protest against orthodox christianity against the eucharist against the the sacraments um and it really began now. Nowadays, the Muslims, they don't 
they don't really attack the Eucharist like they did in the past, though. They don't. Because I think as the centuries have gone by, Islam has become more and more of its own religion. And it's separated more and more from its, I, I hate to say Christian roots, but it's Christian influence, I would say. Um, so that that subject really fascinated me. When I was in high school, I started reading the Hadith and I read about all the violence that was committed by the early Muslims in Syria and Iraq, etc. And when I also when I was in high school, that's when I began to read about the Armenian genocide, because as you mentioned in the beginning of the interview, my dad and I, we co-authored a book called uh, For God or for Tyranny. That book came out. Um, that book came out in, uh, I want to say in 2010, 2009. But when I was researching I began researching that book when I was in high school. That's when I began researching it, researching for that book. And I began to write it. And then I finally finished it. So I started writing it in 2000, like late 2007, and then eventually finished it. I want to say in 09 or 2010, one of those years. And as I was researching it, I began to read on the Armenian genocide because my dad told me about the Armenian genocide. And he also told me about the Smyrna massacre that happened after World War One, when the Turks butchered all the Greek Christians in Smyrna, which in Turkey is called Izmir or Izmir, and how when the Turks massacred these people, they killed so many people that when the the I think it was the when the British people in living in Smyrna wanted to leave on their big ship. The ship couldn't had difficulty getting out of the dock because the heads and all the bodies in the water were clogging up the propeller. That's how that's how bad it was. And that massacre was organized by the young Turks and it was instigated. And I know Turkish nationalists today would absolutely deny this, but it was instigated by the the hero of every single Turk, be they atheist or Muslim, Kamal Ataturk. So. I began researching all these things and started reading a lot about it. And I noticed, man, the savagery of the Native American is no different than the savagery of the Turk, be it in Smyrna or be it in the Armenian genocide. Like it's all there. The the like the the brutality of the Armenian genocide was uh, it was very distinct in cruelty. And you can say the same thing about the massacre of the Assyrian Christians and the Greek Christians. And um, that is what got me really fascinating into that. Not fascinated in the violence, but it got me passionate about that subject. And then how the Armenians, the Armenian genocide is denied by the Turkish government. And then in 2010, I started reading on on Buddhism. <laughs> this is what this is when I this is when the fascination with Buddhism got commenced in my brain. And it was because uh, I found this this little documentary on YouTube because at that time I was interested I was interested in martial arts and I started looking into Asian religions not because I wanted to convert or anything but I was just I was always interested in different religions and I started reading on Buddhism and I found this uh, documentary on how and I don't think it's even on YouTube anymore because this was over a decade ago but it was on how. Uh, Buddhism had an influence on the Japanese during the Second World War. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. 
because I, I never really studied Buddhism at all. And I really didn't study the Japanese that, that, that much at all. All I knew is that they attacked the U.S. in Pearl Harbor and there was a war and America dropped two nukes on them. That's all I knew. So I found this little documentary and it talked about how the Zen Buddhist teaching of detachment influenced the Japanese soldiers so that when they raped and butchered and killed, they, did, they wouldn't feel guilty because they would just be detached from everything. So that, that commenced my journey into researching uh, Buddhism. And I found this, uh, this little news documentary on how the, the uh, atrocities committed by the Japanese imperial military during the Second World War are greatly muzzled. They're greatly hushed in the, in the Japanese education system how many people in the Japanese government deny that the army, that the killings that the Japanese committed ever happened. So I began to see a correlation between the Turks and the Japanese, um, how they were both extremely cruel and brutal, one during the First World War, one during the Second World War, how they still today will deny the things that they committed. And I began to see correlations between the cultures and and that got me really fascinated with like, who are the Turks? Who are these people? And then I found out, wait a second, people in Turkey aren't really Turkish. They're like Greeks and, and Anatolian. <laughs> There's a reason why DNA tests are prohibited in Turkey. There's a reason for it. Yeah. I didn't know they were prohibited. Um, but I read that if you look at the actual genetic makeup of those people, they're not Turks. And it wasn't until the end of World War I that they started calling themselves Turks. Before that, they called themselves Anatolians. And you read in the Bible about Uriah the Hittite, and you're like, well, who were the Hittites? And you start reading up on them, like, oh, they were living in Anatolia. Oh, like those are the original people living there, Greeks and other Indo-Europeans who were all eventually Hellenized because of um, Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And uh, you find out that the real Turks are living in Central Asia and Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and all these different countries in Central Asia. And you're like, well, those are the real today look Japanese. So I, it's just, I began to make connections and it was, but yeah, th- but my, my fascination with history, just, I can talk about it for hours and how it, how it happened. It's kind of a long story. Um, I don't want to. That's the whole point that we, no, that's the whole point of why we are here. Um, okay. So I mean, I can talk more about it, you know, like, um, Sure, I, I, I want to unleash you on, of course, on a particular subject because, um, like, uh, honest to God, like two days ago, I was uh, uh, reading a couple of articles about the Armenian uh, atrocity that happened last year. And I was reading through it and I saw an article written by Theodore Shuba. I was like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was your article. And like the week before, I already invited you. I was like, whoa, yeah. God's providence doing his thing. Yeah. And um, uh, so, what I wanted to say, like, uh, what are your thoughts on the pan-Turkic Ottoman ambitions of Erdogan? And do you think that the yeah. future situation of the Armenian Christians in that region are looking dire? Yes, I would say yes. Pan-Turkism is an ideology that has nothing to do with Islam. And I know that sounds like some liberal thing to say, but it doesn't. Um, Islam doesn't really emphasize on race unless you want to talk about their fixation on the Arabic language. But other than that, I mean, Islam is a universalist religion. And that's why in Mecca, you'll see every single race in the world, white Muslims, Asian Muslims, black Muslims, Semitic Muslims, 
You see them all over the place. Um, the Turks have figured out a way, and there's actually a really long history of this, but the Turks have figured out a way to synchronize racism with Islam. <laughs> like, it's not an exaggeration. They have figured out this way. Tur the Turks, you see, they originally came from Central Asia. Specifically, they came from Tur what is today known as Turkmenistan. And they migrated into, uh, into the Middle East in the Middle Ages, medieval period. Uh, and they were pagans. They weren't Muslim when they first entered the Middle East. They were uh, pagans who worshipped uh, the, the, the god of the blue sky, and they were basically Tengrias. Some of them were Buddhists. Actually, a lot of them were Buddhists. And there was a minority of them that were uh, Christian heretics. They, I forget the name of the heresy they were a part of, but it's basically the heresy that teaches that Christ had no humanity. Or sorry, that Christ... Nestorianism. Nestorianism. Yes, mm -hmm. there was a Nestorian. There were some converts to Nestorianism. Um, but overall, most of these people were either uh, pantheist pagans or they were Buddhist. Then um, there was a, a, a project of evangelism from the Muslim world to the Turkish world. Sometime within the medieval period, I don't remember the dates, but they began to do dawah. Dawah is Islamic proselytization or evangelism, basically like missionary work for Islam. And they, the Muslims who preached to the Turks, they realized that if they were going to convert these people, they needed to make Islam appeal to them. Well, how do you do that? Well, a lot of these people are Buddhist. A lot of these people are mystical. They're into their own mystical religion. So they began to sort of make Islam very mystical. And that's why in Turkey today, Sufism and a very mystical Islam that's very different from in form and presentation from Wahhabism. Um, that's why that type of Islam is very popular in Turkey. And if you look at, like, for example, like in the writings of Jalal al-Din al-Rumi, who was... I think he was some kind of Turkish, but he was a Persian. Uh, there's a lot of Persian culture and that heavily influenced Turkey. But Rumi was a Sufist. He was he's one of the like patriarchs of Sufism. And his writings are, if you read them, they're very close to Buddhism. Very close to Buddhism. Yeah. And I think in some poems, he actually references the Buddha. So there was definitely, I think, some Buddhist. And I can't fully prove this, but just from observation and just from reading the fact that a lot of Turks were Buddhist at one point in time, like the Japanese, um, I had to throw that one in there. Um, they, uh, you can see, I, I think that there was definitely some Buddhist influence in Sufism um, and also Christian influence. A lot of influence from Christian monasticism can be found in Sufism as well. Um the dancing thing, like the Sufi dancing, I have no idea where that came from, but the Sufis will tell you that it came from Ali himself, the, the nephew of Muhammad. I don't know if that's mm. true, but a lot of these Turkish people got Islamized. And there is a man, there was a book that I read years ago. I forget the name of it, but it was basically it was called um, I think it was called like Ottoman. Ottoman dreams or something like that. It was written by a Turkish or a Muslim American scholar, and he wrote about the Turks. And how they got is it was a fascinating read, but it's been years since I read it. But one thing I remember, if you look at the Turks who settled in the Middle East, they were 
uh, a type of Turkish people called the Oguz Turks. And the Ottomans, they traced, they traced the Ottoman lineage to the Oguz Turks. The Oguz Turks, they came from another tribe of Turk from Turkmenistan. I don't remember their names, but there was an Oguz Turk. His name was um, something Ibn Seljuk. And Seljuk, uh, I believe he came from a family of converts to Islam or he converted to Islam himself. But there is a text from the medieval period that recounts the early conversions of the Turks in the Middle East. And basically, the leader of these Oguz Turks, I'm not sure if it was Seljuk or one of his predecessors, said, let us convert to this religion so that we may control the people here. So when the Turks converted to Islam, they did so only uh, for uh, uh, to have an advantage. It was to appeal to the Middle East, to the people in the Middle East, so that they could easily control them. That's what it was. It was strictly for political reasons. It wasn't because, oh, they really believed in this stuff. Mm-hmm. So Turkey, the Turks have, I think they always have a, they've ha- always had a history of using Islam when it was an advantage for them, but not really believing in it. And if you look at the, um, the Armenian genocide, you, you see that sort of thing happening where the people who were murdering, who did the killings of the Armenians and the Greeks and the Assyrians, they were Muslim who hated Christians. There's no doubt about that. But if you look at the people who actually orchestrated the crime, these people were not Muslim. By the way, speaking about it, uh, you know, do you, do you know the Turkish writer called Tanner Akshem? Ever heard of him? No. I have like, he has like, uh, he's a Turkish uh, scholar. He has written like three books mm-hmm. as a Turk speaking about the Armenian uh, genocide. Uh, he had to flee, of course, to Massachusetts. You know, God willing, hopefully one day we'll have him also on the podcast as well. He has written this book called Killing Orders. And this was, of course, from the atheist Muslims. And what we have here, and you can see what you hear in red lines. This mm-hmm. is the letter that he had. And it literally says on it, deport only Armenians. That's genocide right there. That's just like the epitome yes. of what genocide actually is. Yes. So, but there yes. were, there was, a, there was, I can see what you say when, when Turks are using Islam for certain other political reasons, that all the way throughout yes. the ages, that has been the case. So great observation. Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a true observation. Um, see, a lot of people, the younger people in the Middle East, I think they have more sympathy to the Turks than the older generation, because in the generation of my father or and the generation of his father and the generation of my grandfather's father, my great grandfather, they hated the Turks. They straight up hated, especially the generation of my grandfather and my great grandfather. They hated the Turks and they were Muslim. They hated the Turks because the Turks when they controlled the Middle East, they did mass deforestation. They destroyed the, the environment. And, and not to sound like, a, like some global warming person, but they destroyed the environment to the point where there was nothing to eat. Like they would, they, 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 uh, when they controlled the, uh, the West, like for example, my grandfather would tell you, or my great-grandfather actually, 
and my grandfather would tell you this, that when they were living under the Ottomans, there was so much starvation that people were living off of eating snails. My grandfather told me this before he passed away. He said that people were harvesting snails in the wild and boiling them and eating the snails. And I mean, you could say, well, you know, the French do that. So, you know, that's not too bad. Okay. But they were also taking cow manure, cow droppings, and they would, they would extrapolate the grasses in the cow droppings, wash the grasses and boil the grass and eat it. That's how hungry they were. So there was so much starvation. And then also they would um, force people in the military. Like my great grandfather was forced into the Ottoman military. And a lot of Palestinians uh, deserted, including my great-grandfather, deserted. And uh, I don't know if my great-grandfather joined the British side. I don't think he joined the British side. But a lot of Palestinians did join the British side in World War I because the British military at least fed their soldiers. I think that's one of the – I think that's probably the biggest reason why the Ottomans lost so many battles in World War I because they just – for example, there was one battle between the Russians and the and the Ottomans over the Caucasus, and the Ottomans' troops were each soldier was given a lo a little loaf of bread to eat. It's like here's your little loaf of bread to eat. So by the time they reached, they had to literally march through the Caucasus mountains in the middle of winter. Thousands of soldiers froze to death, and the ones that didn't freeze to death when they finally arrived to fight the Russians, they were starving and the Russians slaughtered them. Uh, the Ottomans, they did not know how to treat humans. They didn't care about human life. And a lot of the older generation in the Middle East, they hate the Turks. They don't trust the Turks. The younger generation, they never lived through that. They never lived through what their grandparents went through or what their great-grandparents went through. So and they see the Turks coming out and saying, oh, yes, we're going to fight for Muslims or we're going to be the leader of the Muslim world. And they, they, they gain some kind of inspiration from that. And they don't realize that they're being tricked by people who are using Islam, using that to their advantage, because I don't think people really a lot of people know this, but a lot of people in Turkey are atheists. Mm -hmm. And I've met I've seen Americans who will say, oh, well. In Turkey, it's just the Muslim ones that are bad. The, the secular ones are okay. It's the secular ones that are okay. But it's like, if you look at a lot of the Turkish, the secular Turks, um, if you look at a lot of like the political movements in Turkey that are secular, they're all nationalist. And they all revere Ataturk. And they all deny the Armenian genocide. See, that's the one thing I think that, in a way, it unites the Muslims and the secularists in Turkey, that they're both nationalistic, and they both deny the Armenian genocide. And as long as they, as long as you deny the Armenian genocide, to me, you're dangerous. That's the way I look at it. Because you're nationalistic, you deny that this genocide happened, you support militarism against Nagorno-Karabakh, you believe in expanding Turkish influence. What's the difference between you and Erdogan? You know, and the, and the thing is that racism in Turkey is very high, very high. Now you have, and I don't know if you've seen some of the videos that have come out showing this, but you've had numerous instances in Turkey 
where Syrian-owned businesses have been yeah, sacked. Yeah, I've seen that one. Yeah, there's a whole store was just attacked yeah. by a whole mob of Turks. Yeah. Yes. And and they don't like people speaking Arabic. Uh, and th- this this is something that is part of the legacy of the Ottomans. Because when the Ottoman Empire ruled over Turkey and much of the Middle East, um, the Ottomans, they had a, uh, a policy where they began to replace their Arab-speaking officials with only Turkish-speaking officials. Part of the Armenian genocide, and, the, and I, I also have to add this in, the genocide of the Assyrians and the, and the Greeks, was Turkification. Basically saying, okay, you want to be Christian, fine, but stop speaking Armenian. Speak Turkish. Adopt Turkish culture. Adopt Turkish customs. And the Armenians didn't want to do that. So the young Turks basically the free masonic organization that ruled turkey they saw they had this aspiration of um homogeneity making the ottoman empire into a homogenous state where everyone's speaking turkish everyone is turkified so they didn't like people for example speaking arabic and they didn't want that but that's the whole funny thing because um if it comes from an Islamic perspective, for instance, you would say that the longest reigning dynasty of Islam has been the Ottomans. But then you should, then there should be, there's, there's this book that, they, that I've read from uh, Robert Spencer called The History of, of Jihad, for instance. There's this whole chapter about the Ottomans, of course. But then it's very funny to hear that they didn't want to have any Arabic language over there. So I was like, that's awkward. I didn't expect that one. Yeah. Because it's not really about Islam. Islam is, again, has a huge role, but it has a huge role in influencing the masses. But the people on the top are not even Muslim. I mean, there was this whole thing that was spreading around online, I remember, that in Turkey, they're banning the teaching of evolution. And they were saying, yeah, look, Erdogan is just this Islamic fundamentalist, crazy religious fanatic, and he wants to get rid of evolution and it was almost like they were trying to compare erdogan to christians in america who don't believe in evolution and i don't believe in evolution just to make that clear but there were people like they were it's almost like they were trying to compare islamic an islamic fundamentalist in turkey to a christian fundamentalist in america that's the vibe that i was getting and the way i look at it is well before i get to that so i actually researched this and i couldn't find any evidence for this nothing i couldn't find any evidence that Erdogan was against the teaching of evolution. In fact, I found the, the exact opposite of what the claim was. The claim was that, oh, they're, they're banning evolution. That's not what I read. What I read was that the Erdogan government was, I think they were trying to remove certain books that taught atheism. But evolution is still included in the school system. And Erdogan even appointed someone to head education who is a fervent believer in evolution um and when you the reason why i'm focusing on this is because evolution evolutionism and darwinism and this is something that is rarely ever talked about but evolutionism and darwinism um has been actually quite influential in turkey probably since the 19th century well yeah since the 19th century that's when darwin started preaching his his ideology um so during the Armenian genocide, the young Turks who orchestrated the whole thing, they were heavily influenced by Darwinism. 
they were heavily influenced by the works of Herbert Spencer. And there were numerous Turkish thinkers who were part of the Young Turks who taught eugenics, who taught that uh, certain people should not be allowed to breed, certain people who have ailments or physical deficiencies and things like that. I mean, this was just no different from European Darwinism or European eugenics. So um, the reason why this is important for me is because if you look at the history of the Armenian genocide, the people who orchestrated believe it and believe in evolution. And evolution is still heavily believed in Turkey. It's heavily believed in. So if you have today pan-Turkism mixed in with some Islamic fundamentalism, mixed in with some evolutionism, you have basically the ideology of the young Turks. It's still there. That spirit is still there. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I believe, this, yeah, that spirit. Pan-Turkism is very popular. And there is a whole aspiration in Turkey to um, have a Turkish NATO. Yeah. Uh, Turkic NATO, basically Turkey leading all the Turkic countries. Central Asian countries, especially Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, the whole thing. Yeah, you, you have you, see, you of course seen those. Um, there are those uh, Turkish officials and Erdogan who are coming together, and they're holding up a map. And there's this whole big, big red uh, thing, and that's their Turkic world. And there's no single point of Armenia to be noticed over there. I saw and, that. Yeah, and the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's w- one of those things where. Um, yeah, my stomach turns from because especially uh, who is an Armenian, of course, but also who has known the Armenian history, who's trying to study Armenian history, of mm-hmm. course, for like uh, thousands of years, it goes back. And of course, the huge summation of church history that we have and a lot of our, mm-hmm. our Armenians are nominal Christians, of course, and are trying to do something about it. But just to see what has happened over, throughout the years against the Armenians, and like, of course, uh, the, la- the war of last year where 5,000 Armenian men were mm-hmm. deceased and four of my family members. And just to see that they are just propagating. You know, and they, were, they are still propagating to their children like those uh, Armenian lands. That's not Yerevan, that is Erevan. That's not, uh, that's not the providence. That is an, uh, that's an Azerbaijani providence, Zangezur. They're, they're teaching their kids that don't, that land that always was been from Armenia that one, one day you should take that one back. And it just, the, the, dem, the demonic influence is just beyond words. And yeah, so my question, what, the first question was, what do you see that the future will entail for the Armenians? Well. It's somber, isn't it? I know, I can't think of anything good, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, uh, well, good in the material sense, but. You're right that Armenia has a very huge history of, of Christianity. Armenia was the first country to make Christianity its state religion, its official religion. And Armenia has such a long history. I don't think the Armenians are going to get exterminated um, because Armenia has such a long history of fighting invaders. Even before Islam, uh, the Persians for a very long even the arabs you know the arabs they invaded armenia i've never there's not a lot i've never heard people really talk about this but there's a lot of there's a number of books on this subject 
um, in the early history of Armenia, Christian history of Armenia, when Islam was a brand new religion, the Arabs invaded Armenia. They did. They couldn't control it for very long, but the Arabs invaded Armenia. Then after, then even before that, before uh, Islam, the Persians tried to control it, and they tried to force the Armenians to worship the fire god. They tried to force the Armenians to worship the fire. Yeah, the Zoroastrians. Were, yeah, yeah, Zoroastrianism. That's right. And and the the Armenians. There were numerous Armenian military leaders who fought the Persians. Uh, Vartan was one Vartan of them. Mamikonian, yeah. Vartan Mamikonian, who fought the battle at Avarai in the year 434. Mm -hmm. He deceased. Of course, he is the martyr, but that, that whole battle was uh, very of important significance for Armenians. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but there were numerous other ones even after him you yeah. know, who, who fought the, uh, the Persians. Um, I'm pretty certain that the Armenians got invaded by the, Mong the Mongols. Uh, Armenia has been invaded by so many different, numerous different empires, and the Armenians are still here. Um, they are a very, and you know this already, Armenians are a very warlike people. Uh, anytime I watch, and I know this, this may sound like I'm belittling, I'm not belittling anything but here, but if you look at like, are you a fan of K1 kickboxing? You're in the Netherlands, I'm assuming Sure I am, sure I am. There's like a bunch of Armenians in kickboxing. <laughs> yeah. And anytime I see Armenians, I'm like, okay, most likely this guy's going to win. Um, the Armenians are very warlike people. And they have to be because they're just, they're just plain, plain, plainly, obviously, because of their history. Um, it's like, it's like uh, Israel. You know, Israel has been invaded or has been in numerous wars with different neighbors. And yeah, Israel is a very militaristic country for that reason. Armenia is a very warlike country. And they defeated the Azeris in the 1990s uh, in the first Nagorno-Karabakh war. And I think the reason why the Armenians were defeated the Azeris, I think the Armenians are overall better fighters than the Azeris. But I think the reason is obvious as to why they lost, the Armenians lost this most recent war in 2020 because the Azeris had the NATO technology. Yeah. And they had the backing of Turkey. And I think that's what makes the second Nagorno-Karabakh war so different from the first one, in the sense that in the first war, Turkey didn't get involved. Uh, I don't think anyone really got involved in that war. Um, and the Armenians won. And I think that if it, were, if it weren't for the, the, the uh, drones, I think the Armenians would have definitely won those, that war. Um, now... The few, for the future, in terms of the future, I just see Turkey expanding itself more and more every year. That's just what I see. I can't really make any sort of detailed, specific predictions because, you know, I don't know the future completely. But just from what I've been seeing since the Syrian civil war, it's like every year Turkey is expanding its influence. Turkey is expanding its military presence. And that whole thing with Nagorno-Karabakh, that was extremely strategic for Turkey. Very strategic. Basically, you take Nagorno-Karabakh, now Turkey, through its proxy, Azerbaijan, controls a region that borders right with the Sunik province within Armenia. And what the Turks and the and the Aziris want to do. And basically, when we talk about Turks and Aziris, I mean, they both speak the same language and they both speak, they both are considered Turks. And 
the Aziris have a saying in regards to their relationship with Turkey. They say that we are one nation and two different states. So two different governments, but we're the same people. That's what the Aziris say. And the Turks agree. If you look at all Aziri soldiers, they all have the Turkish uh, flag on their uniforms, the, the red, the crescent moon on the red color with the red background. So, I mean, I don't really see I, the way I look at it is that Azerbaijan, see, some people will say, oh, it's Azerbaijan versus Armenia. That's not the mm -hmm. way I see it. Mm -hmm. It's Turkey versus Armenia. And there was a guy in Russia. I think he was some kind of official. I don't remember his name. But after the war, he said that this was not an Azeri victory. This was a Turkish victory. There's not only a Turkish victory. There's also Pakistani victory and Israeli That's victory right. and ISIS victory. You're right. Yeah. You're correct. And th that's one thing. Israel's involvement. People don't like talking about that. But that's also very true. And the um, so the way I look at it is Turkey now controls Nagorno-Karabakh. And what Turkey wants to do is have a big old corridor connecting um, Nakhichevan with, uh, with Nakhichevan. Azerbaijan. And now that Nagorno-Karabakh is taken, now the Azeris control, or the Turks really, control that region that borders with the Sunik province within Armenia. So now they can have that corridor. I think they call it the Zengazur Corridor. This is the corridor they want to build. And they basically, it would just connect Nakhchivan through Sunik into Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan. And from there, um, Turkey now has a direct route into Azerbaijan, into Baku. From Baku, you're right on the uh, in Baku, you're right on the uh, on the Caspian Sea. On the Caspian Sea, you go right across the Caspian Sea. You get guess where you are. You're in Central Asia, Kazakhstan. And I don't see it as a coincidence that this whole thing in Kazakhstan. I mean, just I'm not saying that the riots in Kazakhstan were like planned out or something. But what I because there's for decades there has been grievances against the um, the government the I forget the name of the guy who ran Kazakhstan since the end of the Soviet Union. Um, Borat. What's his name? Borat. No, I'm joking. Oh, I'm thinking about. Sorry, go ahead. That's fine. Um, uh, 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 Nur Sultan. Uh, I don't remember his name. Oh, here I have it. Actually, I have it right on my screen. Actually, um, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. So for decades, there have been grievances against the Nazarbayev government and the regime and all that stuff. Supposedly, he stepped down and he replaced it with this other guy, Tokayev. And but they, they say that Nazarbayev still controls things behind the scenes. OK, that's not I don't know if that's true or not, but that's I, I'll it probably is true. But that's not my point. My point is that. When the riots broke out, everybody was talking about them. And then all of a sudden, the Russians park thousands of troops right in Kazakhstan. The Turks scramble and they say, oh, what are we going to do? And they and they have uh, yesterday they had a uh, an online meeting between Turkish between Turkey and and Kazakhstan. And Turkey said, Kazakhstan, if you need anything, if you need anything, uh, tell us, we'll help you. And the Turks also said that there needs to be cooperation. In, between Kazakhstan and Turkey in regards to security and intelligence. This is what they said. So the way I look at it is Russia knows that Turkey wants to expand its influence, expand its, in, its, its control in, in Central Asia. The Soviet Union used to control Central Asia. 
and Russia wanting to maintain the legacy of that of that that power, it wants the Nazarbayev government to to remain there because that is Russia's foothold in Kazakhstan. If it loses it, then it loses its influence. And I think that Russia knows that Turkey wants to expand and it parked its troops preemptively as a bulwark against Turkish influence because Turkey has been talking for years about creating this Turkic union. The way I look at it is kind of like what happened in Crimea in 2014. Crimea is right across from Turkey. Russia Russia annexes um, uh, Crimea and I, the way I look at it, and this is what my father wrote when it first happened, was that Russia was just preemptively acting as a, def- preemptively moving as a defense against Turkey, because Turkey and Russia are competing over the Black Sea. Every, it's like a, so it's a chess game. So you have the Americans withdrawing from Afghanistan, and Afghanistan is within Central Asia. So you have America withdrawing from Afghanistan. America tells Turkey, Turkey, we basically want you to be NATO's representative in Afghanistan. Turkey says, oh, okay, great idea, because Turkey has this idea of a Turkic union. So, oh, yeah, we can, wants to lead the Muslim world, wants to fill in the vacuum that's being left by America. And not too long before this, Turkey, through Azerbaijan, takes over Nagorno-Karabakh, wants to build this corridor that would lead into Central Asia. And then you have riots in Kazakhstan. Russia parks its troops. Turkey is now saying, oh, we can help you, Kazakhstan. We can send troops into Kazakhstan if you want. We can help you. What's going on here? And this is all happening in the midst of Russia and Turkey competing in Syria, Russia and Turkey competing in Libya. What we're seeing right now are the beginning stages of a global conflict. Yep. That's, I see a world war happening. Um, I see a world war. And you see Germany... Uh, you see the tensions between Greece and Turkey over some islands, and and Germany is selling tanks to to Turkey, and Greece tells Germany, "Hey, stop telling, selling selling not tanks. It was uh, I think I forgot what exactly what it was like naval ships or something like that, submarines. I think it was naval submarines." And Germany says, "No, we're not going to listen to you, Greece." And the way I look at it is, man, World War One. You had Turkey and Germany as allies. That's still there. So I see some kind of alliance in the future between Germany and Turkey against Russia and Russia's allies. That may not be the case in the beginning. It could be that you could have like a World War II situation where Russia and Turkey are allies, but they're just doing it for like strategic reasons and they can just start fighting each other. That's also possible. Because Russia and uh, and you know this already, Russia brokered a, a ceasefire between Armenia and Azerbaijan over Nagorno-Karabakh, and Turkey and Russia they kind of collaborated with each other over the um, yeah. the settling of the fighting. Um, but I think that while there is this show of diplomacy, I think that behind the scenes there's competition going on between the two. Um, and also, I, uh, just to uh, let you guys know, there is I, I, this whole ceasefire thing is going to end soon because just yesterday, three Armenian soldiers were killed. Yeah. So I remember, remember uh, 
in 2020, I think it was in in August or July, there was skirmishes happening between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And Azerbaijan bombed Stepanakirk and other areas in Nagorno-Karabakh, killed Armenian people. Armenians responded. And then it kind of stopped. They're like, okay, it stopped. And then in September, boom, it broke out into full-out war. Yeah, correct. And I think we're just going to see that happening again. Because you're, you've already seen yesterday, three Armenian soldiers were killed. Okay, now we're seeing it. We're seeing the ceasefire deteriorating, I think. And uh, it's just going to be another opportunity for countries like Russia, like Turkey, to, to expand their hegemony even more. So that's, yeah. that's the way I look at it. Yeah. Uh, thank you for thank you for the explanation. Because mm-hmm. yeah, if it comes to worldly standards, I don't think that Armenians should rely too much on the West. And then uh, all the other all the Christian Americans, all the Christian Europeans, they will help us, right? They're Christian. Like, first of all, what do you, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? So that's all subject part. But I do want to uh, go to the next question, which will be uh, go a, a bit more towards the West. Uh, coming to look at the anti-Christian movements in the West with like militant atheists, uh, Islam, New Agers, pro-abortions, uh, what would be the thing that Christians should be doing? That's a difficult question to answer because there's nothing much. I mean, in terms of, okay. So in terms of making an actual change, I can say that I can specify what we can do, but no one's going to do it. So it's almost yeah, like, I know, I know. It's trying to one person to tell billions of people to, to act right. in a certain way. I know. But what well, your we, question is, what can we do to change what exactly? Um, what can we do to... Uh, to steer everything in the right direction. Because when we see, for instance, the, the pro-LGBT movement, we see the New Ages, we see the Christian, we see the militant atheists who think that when they are pointing us to us Christians, that they will save the world in their pseudo-heroic type of way. So um, I have the second question right after this, but I will put this one into one question. Uh, speaking about into the interiority of Christianity, we have like, different denominations, Orthodoxy, mm-hmm. Roman Catholicism, uh, Protestantism. Uh, once You once one time said that uh, it will take God's miracle in order to unite us once again. Christ says in yes. Matthew 12, 25, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, but how can we stand? What would, what would be the thing that we Christians uniformly should do? Sure. So I'll start with the first question and I'll transition into the second one. So the first question was, you talked about militant atheism and the LGBT agenda and all that stuff. There's nothing that we can do to really, well, there's something that we can do. That is, we can have absolute collective outrage against it, right? So basically going back to the first story that, my, that, I, that I said in this interview when my dad walked into the office and slammed the book on the desk, we should all be doing acting that way, I think, against this sort of thing. Agreed. against but are people going to do it no but you know the, the 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 sodom agenda is entrenched in the church people say oh it's it's infiltrating no 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 it's already in the church it's there um in the cat i don't know are you catholic or eastern orthodox or which me i'm uh, eastern orthodox okay so i don't know how bad it is in the eastern orthodox church it's probably not as bad as the Catholic world, but in the Catholic church, man, 
I have looked into a number of studies that have been done on this, but I would say the majority of Catholic priests are homosexual. That's that's what I believe, because there's been a number of studies on this. And basically, um, there was one study that was done on homosexuality in the priesthood. And the conclusion was that the amount of homosexuality in the priesthood is 16 times higher than that of the normal population, the regular civilian population, which is insane. 16 times higher. Okay. That's, that means that the Catholic church, the institution, the priesthood is gayer than Israel and San Francisco combined. That's how bad it is. And, um, the only way that Catholics can fix this problem is Catholic people rise up and confront the, the perverts, confront the predators, and make a absolute public outcry to the point where we basically raise hell. Not be violent, but be uh, disruptive and defiant. That's the only thing I can see as a solution. Basically, I, I, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the video of me confronting uh, a predator priest no oh so back in 2014 there was this priest in my area his name was michael yarbrough he died of covid uh i want to say last year but uh or, or 2020 and but in 2014 i was talking to him and he, he said hey uh if you want to hang out sometime to talk about religion uh we can do that and i was like I found that kind of weird because I knew that the Catholic church at that time, at that point in my life, I knew that the Catholic church had a serious problem with predators. And I Googled his name at first. I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to call this guy. I'm not going to meet with them, whatever. But then I Googled his name and I found this article that was published by the local newspaper saying that Michael Yarbrough invited a young man to his office, gra groped him, okay, grabbed this guy inappropriately, and then kissed him on the lips. And the young man ran out of the room and reported it to the bishop, and nothing happened. In fact, he was promoted to from being a priest to being a monsignor, which Pope Francis got rid of the whole status of Monsignor, but Monsignor was basically a, a level above a regular priest. You're kind of like a priest in command type of thing. So I decided that I was going to confront this guy. And it's kind of a long story, but basically I called this guy up and I said, hello, do you remember me? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, let's meet up. And he said, Oh, okay. And I said, well, let's meet at this cafe. So he said, well, I much prefer that we meet in my office. And I was like, okay, oh boy, this guy's a creep. So I said, well, it's much easier for me to, to meet you in the cafe. I, and I made up something that, oh, it's near my job and all that stuff. And he said, okay, fine. So I got myself this little uh, GoPro camera. You ever see a GoPro camera? The real small <laughs> GoPro? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I got a, a, a long hairband and I wrapped the GoPro camera to my dad's wrist. We made it look like a wristwatch. Okay. Wow. So nobody, that's nobody creative. Very, we spent, we spent a couple of hours thinking this. And then I took a cell phone 
and I put this, the cell phone on my breast pocket and I put the recorder on. So that way the voice could be picked up real well, the recording. And my dad sat in the table next to my table and pretended that we had no connection whatsoever. My dad was just a different person. And my dad sat there acting like he was reading a book, acting like he was drinking coffee. And that wristwatch, the GoPro camera was pointed right at us. And your, uh, I remember when I bought the GoPro camera, I went to the Microsoft, the Microsoft store. And, I, and this uh, African-American employee came up to me and he said, uh, how can I help y'all? And I said, yeah, I'm looking for the small. This is what I told the guy. I said, I'm looking for the smallest camera you guys got. And he's like, oh, OK, yeah, well, the smallest camera we got is the GoPro. And I said, let me, I said, can I see? He goes, yeah, yeah, of course. And he showed it to me. And I'm like, yeah, I want it. Just give it to me. I'll buy it. I saw the size of it. I'm like, I, that's what I want. And he goes, oh, oh, OK. Uh, well, uh, he says, uh, I recommend that you buy a tripod. I'm like, for what? He goes, well, when you want to film something, you could put the camera on the tripod and it'll make the camera nice and steady. And I was like, no, 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 that won't be necessary. Just, just give me the camera. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, what you all doing? Like, he was so suspicious of me. And I said, uh, gardening. I said, I'm filming gardening videos. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. So we went to the cafe. He came. We talked for two hours. And at, during the conversation, I just escalated the conversation to the theological disagreement. Because in the church that this guy ran, I watched it. I was in the church when he said this. He told the whole congregation that demons don't exist and that in the time of Jesus, they didn't understand human psychology. So they just attributed mental illness to demons. This is what this guy said. Satan doesn't exist. Demons don't exist. It's all just mental illness. So... In the cafe, I brought it up with him. I said, you know, in the sermon that you gave, you said that in the time of Jesus, they didn't understand mental illness. And so they just blamed it all on demons. And he goes, well, yeah, you know, in the time of Christ, they didn't have the, the knowledge of psychology and human psychology. And so they just blamed everything on demons. And I said, so do demons exist? And this priest said, I don't know. And I said, you don't know? He goes, no, I don't know. I said, so, and this is all in the video. You can, I, I can send it to you if you want. You yeah, sure, it sure. Yeah, for, you made, you, you arrested up my interest, so go ahead. Yeah. So I, I told this priest, I said, so when Michael the archangel led the angels into battle, fought Satan, Lucifer, and all his army of demons, and cast the demons out of heaven, you're saying that didn't happen. And he said, I don't know if it happened. I, I, don't, I said, I don't understand. I'm sorry. You're, you're a priest, right? You're, you're supposed to know. You're supposed to have a conviction on these things. Did they happen? Yes or no? That's all I'm asking you. I don't know, he said. He just continued telling me that I don't know. I don't know. So I said, um, I said, well, when Jesus cast the demons into pigs, and the pigs ran into the water and drowned. Did that happen? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> this guy's hopeless. So I said to him, uh, I said to him, do you preach against homosexuality? He said, no, I don't. He said, in fact, I have gay members in my church. And I would never preach against them. I would never preach against 
Sodom, homosexuality. And I said, well, if you know that someone is homosexual, would you still give them the Eucharist? Would you give them communion? He said, yes, I would never deny them communion. Oh, okay. I said, um, you would never tell them to leave their sin? No, I would never tell them that. Wow. Okay. So he started getting really antsy with me. He got nervous and he said, I got to go. And I said, well, in the beginning, you said that because in the beginning of, the, of our of our meeting in the cafe, I said, how much time do you have? He goes, I have all the time. I have all the time you want. Creepy. I know. Yeah. I said, well, initially you said that you have all the time. I have all the time I want, but now you got to go. He said, well, I got to go. I'm now 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 just to mention this. Because this really tells us how creepy this guy is. He was meeting me on a Saturday afternoon at the time when he was supposed to be hearing confessions. Oh, man. Yeah, mm. it's so creepy. And as he was getting up, I said, well, before you leave, I said, let me just ask you a real quick question. I said, does the name Hector Escalante ring a bell? Hector Escalante was the young man that he sexually assaulted. I said, does the name Hector Escalante ring a bell? He goes, I don't know who you're talking about. And I pulled the article from my pocket and I opened it up and I read it to him. I said, does this, does this remind you of anything? Does this, is this, does this remind you of anything? And he goes, I don't know what you're talking about. Ah, oh, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And he gets up and he just starts power walking out of the cafe. And I chased after him and I'm like, you're a pervert. You're a pervert. And I was screaming so loud. I made such a scene. Everybody was looking at it. It was, it was funny. And I said, this guy's a pervert. And, and I said, don't you ever, I yelled at him. I said, don't you ever, ever think that everybody is naive, that you can take advantage of them. Yeah. And this guy walked up to me. This is also in the video. And he said, is everything all right? I said, yeah, everything's fine. I said, it's just that this guy right here is a pervert who sexually assaulted a young man. He goes, oh, I said, do you work here? He goes, no, I'm just a retired police officer. And when I hear people yelling, I know that, you know, something is happening. And I said, well, no, everything's fine. I'm just telling you that this guy is a pervert who sexually assaulted a young man. He said, well, good for you. So I posted up the video online and I wrote an article with it on Chubot.com. You can look this up. It's called Operation Whip, you know, like a whip. Yeah, yeah. And I said, and it, it, the word up the term, I use the word whip because Jesus took a whip and he drove merchants out of the temple. And Jesus got physical. He got the whip and he drove people out of the temple. And I said, we have to drive the people out of the temple. We have to drive these people out of the temple. And I called that operation whip. And I said, let this video that I have made be an inspiration to other people to do the same exact thing. We have to get these people we have to scare them out. We got to scare them out or else they're just, they're not going to leave. And almost every Catholic that saw that video that wrote to me condemned me. Almost all of them condemned me. So you instead of condemning the other dude. Yes. They said, well, right. he was, they say, well, he was wrong, but you should not because see, this is also in the video. Uh, about two weeks after, about a week or about uh, or two weeks after I confronted him, I went to his church and I didn't say anything to him, but I watched as he gave communion middle of Sunday service. There was hundreds of hundreds of people in this church 
And I just pointed the camera at him. That's all I did. I didn't say nothing to him. I just pointed at him. And he looked, you can see the video. He looked super nervous, this guy. And the ushers came in, they surrounded me and they told me to leave. And I told the ushers, I said, you know, this guy is, is, a, is a sexual predator. He sexually assaulted somebody. He uses the confessional to prey on people. He uses, you know, he, he preys on other people, young men. And one of the ushers said, I don't care about that. I, I, I don't I don't care about that. I said, that, that's, that doesn't bother you. That doesn't bother you. That this guy, you're he goes, he's our monsignor. He's our priest. And I just was shocked by it. So I, I left the church because they said, oh, we're going to call the police if you don't leave. Welcome to America. I don't know how it is in the Netherlands, but in America, everybody calls the police for everything here. Um, or they, they sue you for anything here as well. And as I was leaving the church premises, I saw two young men and I said, and these were, these guys had to have been like 11 years old, 10. Well, they were brothers. One of them looked like 10. The other one looked 11. They were very young. And I told them, I said, I said, watch out. I said, be very wary of your priest because he may try to touch you. And I left. And I, before I left, I screamed at everybody outside the church. And I said, you guys are lucky that I didn't come in here like Jesus and whipped you out of here. <laughs> <laughs> The, but that's the thing that we have to do, but we're not willing to do it because we're so conditioned to believe that, well, that's sacrilege. And I had Catholics saying that what I did was sacrilege. It was wrong of me to go in the middle of mass and disrupt their mass and, and, and say all these things. And I said, well, wait a second. Jesus, in the middle of the Passover festival in the temple, the holiest festival in all the Jewish religion, got a whip and beat people up. Well, that's different. One Catholic guy told me, well, that's different because it's the Passover. Well, whoa, 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 hold on. But at that time, that was the holiest festival. So you can't make that argument. And I had one I had one person tell me that I should kill myself because Yarbrough was a great man. And I would never do anything close to what Yarbrough has done for his community. And I had another guy tell me that if I were there, Ted, I would have beaten you up out of the church. Oh, you would have beaten me up, but not Yarbrough. See, and that's when I began to notice that the problem in the Catholic Church is not the priest. It's not the pope. It's not the bishops. It's not the cardinals. The problem is the people. The people have accepted it. And they have embraced correct. Saddam. Yeah, correct. They embraced it. So there's nothing at this point that we could do. We can try to inspire people, but that just falls on deaf ears. So what's the point? So the only thing that I think that we can do is we can try our best to spread the word like we're doing here, but also to, and this is going to be, this is very difficult for us humans to do, but to work on ourselves. And I found prayer and I have found also physical exercise actually to be super helpful. Nice. Um, you're, you're buff, man. So I could see that one works. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. But yeah, like I, I'm, um, yeah, but I think that yeah, prayer is super important and just trying to get the word out as much as possible. I think that's the, the only thing that we can do at this point. I think the train has been set. The train has just been set. The church, the Catholic yeah. church has become Sodom. It's become Sodom. And it's fair, it's interesting that God established the Institute of the Temple in 
Israel and Jerusalem, only to later destroy the temple. God established the Catholic Church, and I think eventually God is going to destroy the Catholic Church, not destroy it, not the eternal magisterium. I have to say this because you have people who, who try to correct me on this, but I think God will destroy the institution of the Catholic Church eventually. It's just, it's just like he destroyed the temple. As long as he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. That's all I care. What's so that? Me- as long as he ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. A new heaven and a new earth, yes. And that's the whole thing. Like me as an Armenian, I don't want to cling towards the worldly thing, like the Armenian history and these type of stuff. Like uh, one of the most comforting Bible verses, Revelation 21, 2, that he will bring, that he will make everything new again. Everything mm-hmm. that has been brought forth by evil shall not have any dominion at all. And I cannot wait for that. It's like Maranatha, Maranatha, Maranatha all, all day long. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good that you recognize that just talking about Armenian history isn't though because a lot of people just focus on like their nationality or like Lebanese Catholics will focus on being Maronite being Lebanese and Palestinians will focus on being Palestinian like that becomes their religion I'm glad that you it, 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 it was as if there was a time in my life where mm-hmm. when my Armenian nationality just took over me like that was my whole identity and, uh, and in some sense I still am um, mm-hmm. but yeah, but then a particular point, especially when the war broke up, my faith just like quadrupled. Like I saw these Armenian soldiers, they, they were being baptized. They were uh, having like uh, their, their um, garments, garments, their uh, equipment were had like white crosses on them. They were, uh, they, I was seeing the church being destroyed. So like this whole symbolism of, of Christians being persecuted again, especially my own brothers, my own family members. It just came in such a, such a close proximity to me. And I saw in my own close family, I saw that the faith in God, just like deceased, if, if God would be real, then what, why would such a thing happen to us Armenians? But that's the whole thing. We are all under his providence. We're all under the, the sheep from his pasture. We should not be departed from his hand. And then my faith just like skyrocketed. And, and my whole apologetical enterprise or, or ministry just, started off because of that because i saw how the anti-christian uh spirit just infiltrates every one of us and that's one of the reasons of course that i invited you as well because you have because you're studying this type of stuff and that's the whole thing we're doing just trying to edify everyone who has the ears to hear and eyes to see and uh um i had a next question um, can you tell us something about the Islamic jihadist mindset your father has been in and how many other young men are in uh, as well? And in what sense the West should not ignore it? Because I do believe that the whole Islamic external threat is something that we should not put our heads into the sand. For. No, I don't think we should. Definitely. We, we, there's no way we can ignore it at this point. I mean, after 9-11, like, no, you can't ignore it. Um, everyone's, everyone, Islam has, because of COVID and even before COVID, I would say this is going to sound, people may disagree, disagree with me on this, but there was, after 9-11, there was a, a huge, huge, very intense fascination with Islam. Like my dad, so back in the 1990s, my dad was talking about Islam. Um, my dad was a new convert to Christianity joined the Baptist church, you know, the whole thing. And my dad was writing articles online in the 1990s. Yeah, it's in a website that he helped create him and another guy created. It was called um, Answering Islam. That was the name of the... Oh, but Jochen Katz. 
Jochen, yeah, yeah, Jochen Katz, you know yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, Sam Shimon, of course. I'm Sam Shimon, I, I, Jochen Katz, yep. That's I'm the originals. Huge, yeah, I'm the huge beneficiary of, of that website. Didn't know it, actually. Yeah. Oh, okay, so you know about this. So my dad, in the 1990s, with Jochen Katz, they created uh, Answering Islam, and then Sam Shimon popped up, and a whole bunch of other guys popped up. And Sam Shimon, my dad, Jochen Katz, these guys were part of, they were the originals, really. Um, there was really no one talking about Islam. Um, and so nobody cared though. Very few people cared. My father, you know, AOL instant messenger popped up and my dad was using AOL instant messaging to debate with other Muslims online. I remember because he would show me the arguments and the debates and all that. And, um, nine 11 happened and all of a sudden our phone never stopped ringing and everybody wanted to talk to my dad. And before I knew it, my dad was on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, the whole thing, BBC, every major news outlet my dad was on. My dad was going to Ireland, South Africa, England, um, Mexico, Chile, all over the United States. My dad was going everywhere. And that that lasted for years, all the way until 2015. My dad did his last talk in 2015 in Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, there was a huge... It came to the point where like atheists were talking about Islam. You're in the Netherlands, so you know this, right? Hirt Wilders and Ayan Hirsi Ali and like all these people were popping mm-hmm. up. And um, that kind of died in 2017. That's just from my own impression. Like 2018 came and it just everything changed. Like the, the interest began to focus on other things. Uh, yeah, it wasn't as much as it was in the before before then. Then COVID came and nobody talks about Islam anymore. It's a, kind of a dead subject. Um, but um, definitely something that we should not ignore. The mentality, as you asked, the, the mindset is basically, this is going to sound kind of weird, but the mindset of a Muslim jihadist is kind of similar to the mindset of a Catholic crusader in the Middle Ages. It's, I basically... If you really believe that God created you, um, you would do anything for him. You would do anything for God. You would die for God. And so in, in Islam, as in Christianity, as in any other religion, the religion is the center of your life. So if you truly love God, then you will fight for what you believe in, and you will be willing to die in battle for him. That's basically what... Catholics were teaching in the Middle Ages. And I mean, I don't have an, a problem with it. It's like, it's true. Like, if your religion is your cent- center of your life, then you should be willing to fight for your religion. And the Muslims are fighting for their religion, but they're fighting to expand their religion all throughout the world. And they're willing to die for it. That's basically what it comes to. It's hard for us to comprehend this because we just don't think that way anymore. Yeah, right. but it, yeah. but the, the whole thing was when 9-11 happened, there was this whole, I think there was whole interest in Islam and religion in general, but the whole thing that, as I mentioned before, is that um, the militant atheists, they are thinking that they heard somewhere that we serve the same God, so therefore, if you are hostile towards Christians, therefore, we are keeping Islam away. But that's 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 nuts, in my estimation. So, oh, yeah, I, I, we, I'm trying to... I, I keep having to remind myself that you're in the Netherlands and that man, that, oh. so basically the new atheism that popped up in the early two thousands, Dawkins and yeah. Harris, Harris yeah. and all these guys. And 
so that, that so you bring up a good topic here so what happened with the see when my father was preaching against islam talking against islam in the 90s okay before 9-11 my dad had a complete christian objective in what he was doing my dad was trying to convert muslims to christianity that was my dad's goal was to convert people to leave islam to join christ because my father when he was a muslim my father uh was violent my father believed in killing people for islam my father believed like for example when my dad you know before my dad converted to christianity my dad would my dad worked as a computer programmer and his computer programming career it continued on even after he became christian he still was complete my, my dad left the computer programming world in oh that explains because in the 90s he was already writing articles that means yes. that, that technically he, he was so, yeah nice yeah he knew about computers and all that and and my dad he he left the computer programming industry in 2003 or 2004 one of those years and um my dad had a strictly Christian viewpoint and my dad saw how, you know, my dad experienced how Christianity changed him. And so he wanted all Muslims to have that. That was his goal. My dad's goal was never to like, oh, like is, you know, Muhammad was a gay, Allah is gay, the pedophile, this, that, let's make a picture of Muhammad, you know, with a, I don't know, like raping a pig or something crazy like that. My dad was never interested in that. My dad actually never even comprehended that people would do things like that. Then after 9-11, everybody wanted to talk about Islam. So because everybody wanted to talk about Islam, atheists came along in the 20-teens, and they used the Islamic threat as a way to attack Christianity. So now it became from, hey, it became, you know, the counter jihad movement went from being, hey, let's talk to Muslims about Jesus and tell them about why Muhammad was a false prophet to let's now attack all religion and say that if we don't attack religion, then Islam is that's that's the end result. So Christianity is they're all the same. And that's what Dawkins argued. Hitch, all these guys started arguing this stuff. So the counter jihad movement. Which really, which really got established in 2007 in in brussels um there was a conference in the eu parliament building in brussels in 2007 it was called the the counter jihad world's brussels summit i think they called it and robert spencer was there pamela geller was there i think uh philip de winters was there i don't know if you're familiar with him Uh, philip de winter no he's a flemish politician far-right politician he organized the event there's a bunch of other people there i think uh i'm not sure if here builders was there but there was a whole bunch of these guys. my dad was never invited and basically saying that we're now going to make the counter jihad movement into a global movement and a lot of the people who were involved in this thing were atheists and they uh they just had this hatred to islam but it was like a secular hatred so all religion is bad. Attack Christianity. I'm not saying Robert Spencer was this way, but there were people like that in that movement. Like all religion is bad. Let's be secular. All fun- fundamentalism is bad. And it became this general attack on religion. 
And that's one thing that always bothered me about the counter jihad movement. It was, you know, let's paint a picture of Muhammad with a piece of dynamite on his turban and that's have him raping a pig and that's call him a pedophile all the time. And that's, let's just, it was, it became all about provocation and angering Muslims. And my father was never about that. Never about that. That is exactly what bothers me as well. My whole thing is that if you want to be effective, if you want to be effective, you need to use this. That's my whole point because you can, of course, you can use hadiths. You can you can call Muhammad a pedophile, whatever you want, but that mm-hmm. does not convince someone. I, my honest belief is that you cannot. the The war that we should should fight is the spiritual war, something that your father has came through. Yes. So it's all that whole convictions thing. And um, my whole thing is that when, uh, like like Paul says in Romans one, they proclaimed themselves to be wise, but they became fools. Like if you want to do something about it like you need to understand it you need to dive into their own mindset and when as we mentioned before in the beginning like islam isn't a christian heresy derived mm-hmm. from this so if you yes. want to be effective you need to get inside of it in order to do yes so. yeah. and also if you want to be effective you have to be respectful um muslim people i've argued with muslim people before i remember i went to uh, canada years ago and I walked into this Muslim restaurant, not a Muslim restaurant, it's a Middle Eastern restaurant ran by a Muslim guy from Iran. And we started talking in the middle of the public. And I explained to him why I think Islam is a false religion, but I was like very objective about it. I wasn't like, oh, Muhammad was a, you know, he was a murderer or some pedophile. I was just like, hey, like, this is why I don't accept Islam. This is why I think Christianity is the truth. I think that Muhammad um, uh, taught heresy. He did not preach the true teachings of Christ. And he, he, me and him had a back and forth for a while. And there was no violence. There was no anger. Nobody even raised their voice. And I've noticed that there's a lot of arguments. There's a lot of debates on YouTube, public debates in England. You'll see that there's a, there's a place in England. It's called like Park. Uh, yeah, the uh, Speaker's Corner. Speaker's Corner. There's many videos I've seen of people arguing with Muslims, both being respectful and nothing happening. But then they, you have, now, I'm not saying that the Muslims should respond with violence that they shouldn't do that but you have people who know that this will happen and they do it like oh, let's bur-. like there was a guy here in florida let's burn the quran why what's the point what are you gaining out of this what's the benefit yeah. of burning the quran you're just pissing people off that's all you're doing oh uh, we just Agreed. we just want to we just want to do it for attention so it's just attention you're just seeking attention it's all it is you're seeking fame Oh, I'm going to burn the Quran to get famous. That's all it is. But you have but, to be honest. Once in a blue moon, you have one of those conversations that is like very civil, like as you mentioned before, because if you're talking on the internet, you're just attracting the sewage of society sometimes. Yes. It's definitely. very hard to establish those types of conversations. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But um, yeah, the, the whole counter jihad movement, I don't think we should ignore Islam, but I don't think that we should we should treat it with a secular solution. That's, that's the issue that I have. That's the problem because you're dealing with people who are very religious. So if you come at them with this militant atheism, I mean, you're not fixing anything. You're not fixing anything at the end of the day. Um, it's just hate. It's just hatred to religion. What are you, what are you benefiting? And the other thing also I noticed about the counter jihad movement is that it quickly became a vehicle for for the gay agenda 
oh, Muslims are anti-gay. ISIS kills gay people. So if you are against the LGBT agenda, you are like ISIS. I saw a lot of that in 2014, 2015, 16, especially after the shooting that happened in Orlando. I don't know if you remember there was a shooting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After that, the whole thing exploded. Oh, Muslims are homophobic. Islam is homophobic. It's all homophobic. So now if you're against the gay agenda, you're like ISIS. You're like the guy who shot up all those people in Orlando. And it be, and then you have, I don't know if you're familiar with Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, of course I am. Yeah, Milo Yiannopoulos and Gavin McInnes went to the Orlando, went to Orlando and literally tongue kissed each other in camera and said, F Islam. What the hell is this? Like, the, yeah. The, and then, and then before that, there was a, a conference that was organized. Robert Spencer was there. Pamela Geller was there and Hirt Wilders was there. And they had, you can, I can show it to you if you want, you can show the video. They had posters. It was a gay event. They had posters behind them of these young men in these almost half naked, po- half, half naked doing these weird poses and Robert Spencer and Pamela, they're all talking about, oh, how the Islam is against gay people and the gay people. And Pamela Geller said, we have to support Trump because Trump's going to protect the gays from the Muslims. And, and I was like, what the hell is going on? And then Robert, I know you're a fan of Robert Spencer, so yeah. I'm yeah. not trying to say this to just be a, a jerk or anything. I'm just, this is what I've seen. The Robert Spencer, he did a, uh, a review for a book that was pro-gay and anti-Islam. He didn't write the book. It was written by a guy. His last name is Bauer. I forget his first name, but Bauer. And this is how entrenched, how deep the pro-gay movement is in the counter jihad movement. Bauer was one of the pioneers of pushing gay marriage in the United States. And then years later, he joined the counter jihad movement. And he wrote a book. It was a novel about gay people being killed by Muslims and all this stupid stuff. And Robert Spencer wrote a very positive review about it, you know, and all that stuff. It's just like, how can you call yourself Christian, but then do this sort of stuff? It's just very suspicious. So that's my problem with the counter jihad. It became from it went from preaching Christ to Muslims in the 1990s to literally raising the rainbow flag, putting half naked posters of young of young boys and tongue kissing and saying if Islam. I'm not going to be a part of that. Not, not, I, I don't see that being effective at all. But it, but that goes back to the whole point of the anti-Christian infiltration yeah. into the, the, the global globally speaking. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's um, it's just another way. And so and the other thing also is that what people don't realize is that a lot of people like Turkey is the most powerful of all the Islamic world. Mm-hmm. Turkey yeah. is they the, have they Turkey, have the biggest army. Yeah. Turkey has the second most armed military in all of NATO very well armed those guys and they're beginning to develop their own military industry but a lot of people a lot of the people in turkey are atheists so people say it's it's against islam we have to support the secular turks but what about the secular turks who are racist who love Ataturk, who deny the armenian genocide who have also aspirations of empire like what about those guys so it's not just islam it's it's also secular nationalistic darwinistic ideology that's yeah 
we have to keep that in mind you know we have to keep that in mind but um coming back to turkey um uh, of course there's this whole resurgence of of the of the traditional islamic over the secularism like erdogan is, is a huge proponent of that don't you think that once it gets to a particular point that turkey will happen the same thing as iran happened in the 70s like with the ayatollahs and the whole secularism has been taken over by the traditional islamists do you see any of that happening i don't see that happening no i could be wrong but i just don't see it happening the the, the secularist the secular secularists in turkey are very powerful for one thing the so back in 2019 erdogan's party lost in istanbul against the nationalist party and in turkey they have a very strong a very strong nationalist sentiment very strong nationalistic atmosphere it came to the point where erdogan himself had to make a coalition party with the turkish nationalists Whoa. that's how that's how yeah you can look this up that, that, that's how years a couple years a few years ago that's when the coalition began so Tur- erdogan had to make a coalition party because in turkey there's a pro-kurdish party i forget the name of them but they're a pro-kurdish party very anti-Erdogan. Yeah. And, and Erdogan has always seen this party as its big threat. So what did Erdogan do? Made a coalition party to counter the pro-Kurdish party. They're not just pro, they're liberal, right? They're liberal, but they're like pro-Kurdish and they're more sympathetic to the Kurds and they're very anti-Erdogan. And so Erdogan needed to counter those guys because those guys were gaining popularity. What did Erdogan do? made a coalition party with the nationalist party and defeated um, his opposition. So Erdogan doesn't mind working with the other side if it means an advantage to him. So the way I see Turkey is there's always going to be this, this synchronization, synchronization between Islamic fundamentalism and hardcore nationalism. That's just, that's just how it is in Turkey. And if that means Muslims and atheists working together, like in the Armenian genocide, then that's how it's going to be. Yeah. Iran, I think, is in a different. Iran is a different place. I don't know. I with the Shah. Oh man, it's it's hard for me to to. It's hard to compare each other. Like it's not. It yeah. doesn't necessarily mean just because it happened back then. It will happen in the same way. Yeah, yeah the Shah. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the way I would see it is that when, the, for instance, the Sharia law takes over, there's this whole implosion on the infrastructure of whatever way you want to say. It. Because when I think that the reason why I think that uh, the, the lira, the Turkish lira, is dropping down like tremendously in hardcore, is that uh, everyone is trying to do uh, Islamic investing for some reason, and uh, I don't, I. Okay. It, is that an insight of its own? But- I don't know. I, I really don't know how the lira crashed. I haven't studied that. It, e, listen, it, even if Erdogan gets thrown out and they vote him out and they vote for somebody else, Turkey's always going to be it's the same. Sure. Turkey is going to be heavily nationalistic, heavy militaristic. It's yeah. and the way that you the way that they want to. I, I, you want to say something? But uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll just finish this one last point. The way that the Turks want to boost the lira back up is by in- intensifying industrialization in Turkey. That's going to include military industrialization. So what happens is like the Great Depression. America had the Great Depression. What happened? America boosted up its military, got the economy back up. I think Turkey is going to start 
playing that game. Hey, we have all these enemies. I'm not saying Erdogan's going to do it. It could be somebody else. Hmm. But hey, we have all these enemies. We have the Armenians. We have Greeks. We have the Russians. We have to make Turkey strong, Turkey powerful. We have to rise up from the ashes, kind of like after World War I, and get the lira back up, boosting up military production, boosting up industry, making Turkey great again, so to speak. So... You once one time said that it's not necessarily one person, it's that the whole collective of people who are deciding anything. So you can have a whole coalition, you can have this exactly. whole government, but it's the people they need to take with them. So it's it's the general mentality that's going to be the deciding factor. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Remember that video of uh, of that Russian diplomat getting shot to death by that Turkish guy back in it was like 2016 or something. He was a Russian diplomat. He no, was unfortunately not. No, there's a video you can watch. A Russian diplomat, not too long, but maybe like four or five years ago. A uh, Russian diplomat. He was giving a speech somewhere in Turkey, and some crazy Turkish guy with a with a John Wick suit, what with long hair. The guy looked like John Wick. Just walked up to this Russian diplomat, and just straight up gave him one bullet and killed him. Just, I mean, and the way he shot him, it was so professionally done. This guy was very well trained, and it turned out that this Turkish guy—he was—he uh, was like a high-level security guard who knew that area, and he knew exactly where this guy was. He knew he knew where he had to be, everything, and it was obviously very planned out. And of course, the Russians and the Turks—you know—they had to uh, reconcile with each other after that, and make make sure that it didn't escalate into something bigger. Um, but I'm pretty certain that that assassin was a gray wolf yeah uh, the gray wolves are for example the the nationalist party that erdogan made a coalition with they are heavy with the gray wolves and the gray wolves they have this symbol like that the gray wolf or like this yeah gray wolves they are heavily racist they believe in the superiority of the turkish race and they believe in complete turkish supremacy they're not even really that muslim I don't see anything Islamic in them at all. I don't see Wahhabism. I don't see anything. They're just crazy racist. But that mentality is very strong in Turkey. Yeah. It's very strong. And as long as that mentality is strong, it has to be appealed to. No, correct. Yeah. yeah. Brother um, Theodore, thank you. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a delight having to spoken with you. So many great points were addressed. Um, mm-hmm. What can I say? Where can people find you? What what are you up to in the future? Uh, find me on Facebook, uh, my public page, Theodore Ted Shubot, YouTube channel, Theodore Shubot. And of course, there's our website, shubot.com. Shoe, that's shoe, S-H-O-E, bat, B-A-T, together, shubot.com. Yeah, everything will be in the description, 100%. Yeah, everything. Okay. Well, thank you, brother. I'll post this interview on, I'll post this interview up on Shubot. Great. Thank you, man. Uh, I wish you nothing but the very best, of course, to you and your family. Uh, all the health, all the best that the Lord has to offer you. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy and your wisdom. And uh, maybe in the, in the near future, we'll talk to each other very soon. Absolutely. I, it, was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah.